0: There's nothing natural about gentrification. Indeed, for sociologists, the word natural doesn't even exist.
1: This week on Office Hours, we sat down with sociology and African American studies professor Mary Patillo. Her research explores the topic of gentrification and how the process can change social dynamics in Chicago neighborhoods.
0: I'm a sociologist. I have my PhD in sociology from the University of Chicago. and But here at Northwestern, I am in two departments, sociology and African American studies. Um, and that's because as a sociologist, I study black neighborhoods and black communities more broadly, not just residential communities, but political communities, cultural communities, and so on. I do ethnography, which means I hang out with people, interview people, take notes about everyday um, interactions, um, and I have written two books about Chicago, black Chicago neighborhoods.
1: So what is gentrification?
0: There are lots of debates in academia about what gentrification means, What are its me- how, how might we measure it, how do we know it's happening when it's happening. But then outside of academia, there's just all the ways that those of us outside of the university talk about gentrification, which is not always the same as how academics define it. So if I had to define gentrification, it would be the process by which a neighborhood changes in its socioeconomic status from one time period to the next. And that change needs to be relatively drastic, and the change is always from going from lower socioeconomic status to higher socioeconomic status.
1: Patillo said when a neighborhood is being gentrified, housing prices can rise after more people move in, and local businesses can close after higher end chains open. Patillo also says that gentrification can have a racial component.
0: So gentrification is really about socioeconomic change, but given that Whites on average earn more than Blacks and Latinos, and there are more Whites than there are Blacks and Latinos, it often is also a situation of racial change.
1: So where does Patilla draw the line between mere neighborhood improvement and gentrification?
0: So there's no real line. I think we can think about those drastic differences, how big of a gap is there between the folks who, previous, who had lived there in the beginning and who live there now, how big is the gap of a gap is there in their income and in their education and their occupations and i think the bigger question is are the improvements in the neighborhood broadly experienced by everyone so when we see a neighborhood where a cute new cupcake shop opens up and the cupcakes are $3.50 each the family who earns $25,000 a year and has two kids is not buying $3.50 cupcakes. For them, that new business is a complete non-entity.
1: Patillo said gentrification starts with a few investors seeking returns and a few buyers willing to take the risk and move into a cheaper neighborhood.
0: In order for gentrification to happen, it has to, a neighborhood has to begin um, with very low housing costs gentrification is a speculative process, an economically speculative process, meaning the first investors think they're going to get a big return for their money. And the only way to get a big return on your money is for stuff to be really cheap to to begin with. Low-income neighborhoods are risky economically because sometimes you can't get a traditional bank loan, and so you have to put your own capital up, your own money up, as opposed to using a bank loan. And because. You don't really know if it's going to gentrify or not. So you could buy one of those $80,000 houses, and in 10 years that house might be worth $50,000 because gentrification never happened. So that's the economic risk. Especially for people who are planning to move into the neighborhood, for them, there is the risk, or at the very least, the cost of moving into a neighborhood that doesn't have uh, stable businesses, where the city services might not be that, that that good, where the schools might not be good, where the crime might be higher. Um, all these kinds of things that make it risky, not ne- just from a financial point of view, but from a social and quality of life point of view as well. First, you get the folks who are fine with a lot of risk. I don't know which direction this neighborhood's gonna go, the crime is still kind of high, the schools are really bad, but it's really cheap and I'm gonna take this risk. Well, now they start to move in. They rehab a couple of buildings. They start a block club. Then the crime goes down a little bit more. The neighborhood starts to look a little better. They plant a couple of trees. And then you get a next group of folks whose risk level was not as high as the first group, but still are, you know, open to the fact that, okay, yeah, but there's still no grocery store. There's still no place, no, no care center, but I'm still gonna take the risk. And sooner or later, when you get to a point where a neighborhood is almost fully gentrified, you've now gotten to the tastes of almost everybody, and that's when the prices are super high. There is nothing natural about gentrification. Mm-hmm. Indeed, for sociologists, the word natural doesn't even exist. <laughs> There's
1: nothing Petilla natural emphasized about- emphasized that the city government has the power to perpetuate gentrification or to stop it in its tracks. However, she said that city
0: governments often benefit
1: from this process.
0: So city government can very much set a spark for gentrification, by um, investing in communities that they think are not uh, realizing their full potential. How How do governments work? Well, they collect property taxes, they collect sales taxes. Those are the two big revenue sources, and you increase those by increasing housing values and you increase sales taxes by increasing the number of businesses and better yet businesses that sell expensive things Um, so the government has an interest in um, you know increasing the number of rich people in a neighborhood and will do lots of things to support developers of high end stores and so on Mm -hmm. and it needs to be just as vigilant about supporting the needs and housing opportunities for low income folks so I don't want to Underemphasize the role of the government in um, facilitating often gentrification without also putting some of the brakes on it. So the city can do everything from start repaving streets to increasing uh, police patrols to decrease crime to um, um, what they've done in a number of neighborhoods sell adjacent lots vacant lots to the homeowner next door. Now that vacant lot is being cared for by someone, the neighborhood starts to look better. It can either require affordable housing or not. One of the ways to um, um, interrupt a process of rampant gentrification is to protect the affordable housing that's there through various kinds of government programs, or require that when new things are built, it includes a certain number of affordable housing units. That all totally requires government subsidies and government participation in the planning of that neighborhood. According to Patillo's
1: research, gentrification is prevalent in Chicago.
0: Pilsen and Little Village, which are uh, Mexican neighborhoods on the near southwest side, very much threatened I would say by the expansion of the University of Illinois at Chicago and um, uh, you know there's a lot of artist communities in the Pilson neighborhood which is again kind of the first group that is has a high risk tolerance and will move into a neighborhood they don't have kids that kind of thing. So as Northwestern students move across the country for summer
1: internships and first jobs, how can they be wary of and avoid contributing to gentrification? Patillo said that although students may need to prioritize financial considerations, It's what they contribute to these neighborhoods that counts.
0: You can be as conscious as you want, and then you will also have practical considerations like how much you can pay for rent, and um, you'll also have tastes. You will uh, perhaps want to live in a diverse neighborhood, and there aren't that many in Chicago, and, um, and some of the diverse neighborhoods are the ones that are in the process of gentrifying perhaps becoming less diverse, but at the very least right now they're diverse. You know, if you really value, say, if you're going to move to Humboldt Park, which is a Puerto Rican neighborhood, you supposedly value that diversity, then you can't complain when folks are in Humboldt Park having a birthday party on a Saturday and blasting salsa or reggaeton and you hear it, you can't complain. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Supporting local businesses, yeah, I think that's very much... The case, and at the very least, not fighting for the closure of local businesses. You know, that is a very common thing in gentrifying neighborhoods. But I don't think the decision is so much at the point of deciding where to live for recent Northwestern grads, because again, you guys are young, you're likely just to be renting, it will be for a short time, mm-hmm. but more so what you do when you get there.
1: That was Professor Mary Patello breaking down gentrification and all of its implications. Thanks for listening to Office Hours on the Daily Northwestern. I'm Rachel Silverstein, and anarchist-nosed-by producer. The co-editors of the audio desk are Molly Glick and Sam Burnets, and the editor-in-chief is Peter Keducki.